Do you notice that no one's taping? Thank you, Joel. You notice that no one's ta uh, taping video, so I can I can relax a little bit. I don't have to always present my best side, you know, kind of like this to the camera. <laughs> and uh, Father, we just thank you in Yeshua's name for this time together. We pray that your word would be alive and would grant life to us and understanding and revelation. Father, we ask that there would be um, an impartation from you for us. Help us to see anew these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. Are we doing all right, Joel? Okay. This is the man, in case you never know, he has an army named after him. And this is Joel. You've heard of Joel's army? Good. Well, now I just wanted you to tie in. Okay. Um, the, the, the general rubric or umbrella today is called uh, uh, um, apologetics. And some of you don't use that word normally. And uh, they think, well, what are we apologizing for? Uh, apologetics is a Greek word which deals with the defense of, uh, of a word, defense of an idea. Uh, it's not um, uh, um, feeling bad about something, but it's explaining uh, why it's right or defending the truth. Paul talks about um, the importance of bringing every thought captive, bringing down, pulling down every uh, stronghold and every thought, lofty thought that exalts itself against the name of Yeshua. And there's an aspect of spiritual warfare which uses your mind. I know a lot of people think that God only uses the heart, but He uses the mind as well. And uh, thoughts have great power and influence nations and the destinies of nations and individuals. And so we're going to be looking at something very simple to begin with, and then we'll try to dig in a little bit from there. The first thing we want to look at, as I said yesterday, it's a two-part thing, is, uh, is election. And again, election is a fancy Greek word. Uh, there used to be uh, the elector of Brandenburg in Germany. And this, me this word means literally um, uh, to, to choose. Okay? So it involves a choice of God. And um, when we get to the issue of why the Jews and why did God choose the Jews, we had some discussion of, of reasons here, but I want to get into more nitty-gritty stuff about the election, and so I want us to begin with a simple passage, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. This is a passage we know, many of us may even know it by heart, but there's a, uh, there is a whole, I think, a paradigm, if you like, or a, a grid to help us understand what's going on today. Marvin Gaye years ago said, what's going on? That was a famous song of his. Some of you don't even know who Marvin Gaye was. And some of you, anyway, he had nothing to do with anything else. Okay, Genesis 12. Now, the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house. So there's kind of a, a tripartite leaving here, if you'd like. He's leaving his moladet me'autzecha from your land, me'moladetecha from your birth homeland, your, your, your birth, like you would say, motherland. 
So in Hebrew you say, birth land. Your own father's house. So you're not leaving generally, as it were, your passport behind. You're leaving your patriotism behind. And you're leaving your father's family connection behind. He left everything. Okay? He was a stateless person in God when he went out. And he gave everything. He didn't go back. He never went back. This is a calling. And it says, go to the land that I will show you, future in Hebrew. So he went out and somebody said, okay, so you're off on a missionary trip. Where exactly are you going? And he said, I don't know. And they said, ha, a likely story. Has anyone heard of Jackie Pullinger Toe? How she got on a tramp steamer and just went <laughs> and got off in Hong Kong, finally. Didn't know where she was going. And the Lord opened up for her an incredible ministry within the walled city. And you know her story, chasing the dragon and many other such things. Well, that's kind of like what happened with Abram. He went out knowing nothing, not knowing where he was going, not knowing the ultimate destination, not knowing how much provisions to take with him, not knowing when he was halfway there. You know, if the kids are saying, Daddy, Daddy, which he didn't have any kids, how, how long do we get there? How much more? How much more time? He had no idea, you know. So, uh, yeah. So he goes out, and then God makes some promises to him starting uh, at the end of verse 1. He says, to a land which I will show you. So I don't say circle your Bible, but if you have a piece of paper and you want to put down that word, that's the first key. There's a land. The calling involves a land. And then he says here in verse 2, and I will make you into a big Gentile. <laughs> See, in, uh, in Italian, and you want to say people, you know, any kind of people, you say a gentile. That's what Gentile means. It just means a people. It's not a bad word. Okay? It's people. And God says to Abram, I'm going to make you into a big Gentile. I'm going to make you into a big people. So the word goy can refer to the Jews in the Bible. It's not just a Gentile word. Usually today it's used to refer to the non-Jews. But it means nation. The nations. So it's not a, a, an insult in itself. Okay? I will make you into a big nation. Second word, nation. You've got a land, a piece of real estate. Then you've got a nation who will live on the real estate. And then he continues into the issue that we usually focus on because in the church we have been more comfortable with the concept of spiritual blessing than we have with the Jewish people. So we take the blessing out, we circumcise the Jewish people, get rid of them, and then we get left with the spiritual blessings. And that's often the way this passage is understood. The most important thing is the spiritual blessings for the nations, which is funny because that's not the way it's written. Now, ultimately, that's very much in God's heart here. But we can't get ahead of ourselves. There's an order, and this is so important. And that's what I'm going to be talking about for a fair measure today in order. So we've got a land, then we've got a people on the land, and then he says, and I will bless him, I will bless you, excuse me, and I will cause you to become big, uh, your name to become big, and 
He commands him, you, be a blessing. Okay? And then he says, I will bless your blessers, plural, and the one who makes light of you, I will curse. That's the Hebrew. Two different verbs. Mikalalecha, the one who treats you as kal, as light, as insignificant. The one who says, well, yeah, God used you once. Now he's using the church. That brings a curse. Replacement theology brings a curse, according to this. Laughing at the Jews, you know, brings a curse. It's really hard. To, it's not politically correct to do that. But the one who basically laughs at you, derides you, uh, thinks you're stupid or funny, um, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So you have this universal aspect here, all under blessing. So you could divide blessings here into three sections. Again, you have Abraham's personal blessing. He gets blessed by God, and he's commanded to be a blessing. And then there's a kind of a, um, what I call the Plotkin diamond. You remember the Plotkin diamond? No, you don't know about that one. Some of you don't know about it. Well, uh, there was a big kind of a tea party, and Mrs. Plotkin was there. And uh, she had a small bobble, a little diamond on her finger, about the size, you know, of, you know, the gross national product of Honduras or something. And people were looking at it and saying, that's so beautiful. And she says, oh, yes, this is the very, very famous, the Plotnik diamond. And they said, really? We never heard of it. And they said, yeah, and it comes with the Plotnik curse. I said, what's that? And she said, Mr. Plotnik. <laughs> so... When we think of the Abrahamic covenant, we think of the blessing part, but there's a cursing part too. You see? There is a cursing part. You bless the Jews, you get blessed, but you curse them and you get cursed. You laugh at them or you ignore them at your own peril. That's what he's saying here. Now, why does he do this? It doesn't mean Jews don't suffer, because the nations, ever since this was said, said, we're from Missouri, we're the show-me state, let's curse them and see what happens. And this is also the history of the nations. So every major superpower in the world has cursed the Jewish people. And America is no exception. As well as being a blessing, and has been a blessing, it will ultimately end up cursing the Jewish people. And this is not a question of maybe. It's a biblical statement. All the nations are going to turn against the Jewish people. And that includes America. One of the ways we know that, of course, in our day, has to do with the issues of land. But we'll come back to that in a minute. Okay? So God says, here's this people, and they have a banner over them that has three things. A land, a nation, and a protective blessing. So this is what God charts out as kind of the, the first stamp like in the Bonanza movie, you know, when you see that branding iron. You don't know what Bonanza is, do you? It's a steakhouse. Okay? That's right. Yes, another steakhouse, as Emilio de Finesse would say. And um, so you have a, um, 
uh, a branding in history that God does with the Jewish people. This is called election. So let's think for a few minutes about these things. Okay? Let's look at the uh, the uh, first. Well, let's look at the first, the second point, which will be our first point: the nation, the nation of Israel. <coughs> God takes the Jewish people and he says, I've chosen them. Years ago, there was an Afro-American comedian named Bill Cosby. He does Jell-O commercials today. And uh, in those days, uh, he used to be a stand-up comedian in uh, nightclubs and stuff like that. And uh, he told the story of Noah one time where God is talking to Noah and says, Noah, I want you to build me an ark. And Noah says, Sure. What's an ark? You know? Yes, Lord. It's kind of like the vineyard. Yes, Lord. But what is it exactly you called me to do? Uh, all of us, actually, not just the vineyard. But um, this is just uh, history. And uh, so God calls the Jewish people, but what's the reason? What's the point of it? And uh, I want us to look in Genesis 49 for a second to understand something here that some of you may know, some of you may not know. The Jewish people uh, have a certain calling in relationship to all the other nations. The tendency in church history has been to either ignore that or to belittle that. And so what we're going to look at, some of you may not have seen before, it's a biblical point. In Genesis 49, Jacob calls to his sons and he says, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear you, sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Then he begins to talk to the firstborn. Re'uven. Behold a son. The first boy that popped out of all the twelve. You are my firstborn. My might and the beginning of my strength. The excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. End it there. Leave a good report about Reuben. Make him feeling better because the rest coming after isn't so good. But the, there's a point here in that the firstborn has a certain role in God's economy. This is pre-Mosaic, isn't it? Okay. There's a God economy thing here about the firstborn. Now, I love all my children. And I tell each one of them, Daniel, you're my favorite Daniel. David, you're my favorite David, Asafia, etc. But there is a firstborn issue here. And it's important in God's economy. And so what happens here, he says, you're my might. You're the beginning of my strength. You're the excellency of dignity, the excellency of power. Now, we live in the 21st century, and we know everything about child rearing and we're doing a much better job about it in our country. Families are being held together much more than they were. We know a lot more about why this shouldn't be. Right? But God has some principle here that he's working with and I want us to turn to uh, the book of Deuteronomy to, uh, to see this principle in motion. 21. Deuteronomy 21, verse 15. If a man has two wives, one loved and the other unloved, 
and they have borne him children, both the loved and the unloved. And if the firstborn son is of her who is unloved. Two wives, the first one he doesn't like, she's the one who has the firstborn. Does that remind you of somebody in the Bible? What's his name? Jacob. And what's the wife's name, the firstborn wife? Leah. And she had, it says, gentle eyes. It could mean weak eyes, but it may be gentle. Anyway, he didn't like her, but he liked Rachel. He was crazy about Rachel. And um, so he got two wives for the price of one and uh, had a wonderful family life, as we read about in the Bible. But it says in verse 16, It shall be on the day that he bequeaths his possessions to his sons, that he must not bestow firstborn status. See that word? Firstborn status on the son of the loved wife in preference to the son of the unloved, the true firstborn. Who was the preferred wife for Jacob? Rachel. And what was her firstborn son? Joseph. And what happened? Abraham gave him a beautiful coat. And uh, he told his brothers, I think daddy likes me more than you. And, And I had a dream about it too. Prophetic revelation to back it up. And they said, we love the prophetic. Right? So you want to go back to Egypt. And uh, what happened, he had a lot of problems through that whole thing. And, but nevertheless, it says in verse 17, The father shall acknowledge the son of the unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double portion. See that word? A double portion of all that he has. For he is the beginning of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. So now it's a legal principle. The firstborn gets double in Norway, when I went to visit Rachel's parents and we saw, uh, relatives, and we saw uh, the Clemenson farm uh, out there, and we met uh, not the last survivor on the farm, but people who were renting a little uh, house on that farm. And I asked, how come there's no more Clemensons living on this farm? And they said, well, in Norwegian tradition, maybe from the Bible, uh, the oldest son would get half the farm as his inheritance. And the rest of the kids would have to divide up the other one. Now, if everybody dies from plague every few years, it's great. But if people live long and are healthy, then you move to America. Right? Which is kind of what happened. There was no more farm left. So if you have eight sheep, nine sheep, Nine and a half sheep. If you have nine sheep and three sons, what are you going to do? Well, one son gets twice as much as the other, right? So two and two is four, and then twice four is eight, and then the other sheep got run over. And so you have basically, that's how the sheep go, double portion. So when Elijah meets Elisha, and then at the close of their relationship, Elisha says, I want a double portion. He's not saying, I want to do twice as many miracles as you. He's saying, I want to be your recognized heir. I want to carry the torch in my generation like you carried it in yours. That's what a double portion is. And so God says that the firstborn son gets this double portion. Look back with me at Exodus uh, 
chapter 3. Or 4, I don't know. It's one of these things here. It depends which Bible I use. (laughs) Exodus 4. Exodus 4. You shall say to Pharaoh, verse 22, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me, but if you refuse to let him go, I will indeed kill your son, your firstborn. Now it turns out that he kills not only Pharaoh's firstborn, but the whole land of Egypt's firstborn. But this firstborn thing is a principle. God is preaching the gospel in Egypt. And he's using the concept of the firstborn to teach the nation something about his character. He's doing that with all of us in the church today through the Jewish people. Most of us try to ignore or never learned that lesson. So it's important to learn this lesson. Let's look to uh, Romans uh, chapter 9. Romans 9. Verse 1, I tell the truth in Messiah, I'm not lying. My conscience is also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. He's saying, what I feel, the Holy Spirit feels. That I have great sorrow and a continual grief in my heart. How can that be that human beings can cause grief to God? Usually our view of God is a Greek view. God is above the passions of man. He doesn't feel. He's colorless, odorless, tasteless, and passionless. He's jelly in deity form. But the view of the biblical God is that his nostrils get red and shake with anger. He he runs after the one he loves and clothes her in porpoise skin sandals. He, 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 he changes his mind. He does all these things that drive theologians crazy because we don't know how to balance them because they're too human-like. Maybe we were created in his image. Maybe we're divine-like. But anyway, it says here in Romans 9 that God feels grief. And he says in verse 3, I could wish my, that I myself were accursed from Messiah, For my brothers, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are the Israeli people, to whom pertains the adoption. Now, if you know Romans, you know Romans 8 uses the word adoption, referring to a calling of salvation. Paul's not using that word here. He's using it Exodus 4, the national calling. Israel is my firstborn son. So he's saying, to the Jewish people pertains the national calling, the national adoption. Now, is he using present tense or past tense? Okay, after the cross, it doesn't change. The body of Christ does not change the national calling on the Jewish people. This is one point that within the church today, many would rise up and call me heretic and the Bible interpretation heretical. They would say, no, no, God's finished with the Jews. But the Bible says, no, that calling lasts today. It's a national calling. Christ did not change it. It was his idea. Very important to understand. Then he says, to them pertains the glory. That's the Holy Spirit. It's a Jewish Holy Spirit, if you like. 
Or he says, I belong to Jacob. That's what the Holy Spirit says. There's a connection there. Again, the whole concept, are they the feasts of the Lord or the Jewish people's feasts? The Bible says they're both. Is he, the, is he a Jewish God? No, but he's the God of the Jewish people. He's, he's the God of everybody. He's the God of Muhammad too, as they say in the National Cathedral in Washington. But he's not Muhammad's God that Muhammad thinks he's, etc. Then he says the covenants belong to the Jewish people, the giving of the law, the service of God that was being in the temple, the promises, all these things belong to the Jewish people. Now, sometimes it upsets people to hear this. I guess if you're at this conference, you probably believe these things, so I'm preaching to the uh, completed, as we say in the Messianic movement, uh, to the converted in the Christian movement. And uh, if you understand that joke, come back and uh, we can talk more. Okay, there's certain buzzwords that you can't use among certain people, so I just use both of them. And uh, so what he's saying is the Jewish people have these things. They belong to them. Now, you all have heard stories of the bag lady who dies in some American city, and they discover that she had millions of dollars, but she never made use of it. It was hers, but she lived as a bag lady. She had a potential inheritance, but she didn't use it. That's where the Jewish people are today. We have an incredible inheritance. It's ours. It says, you know, 12 tribes inheritance. And um, we're not making use of it. Now, it's ours, but if you don't use it, you die penniless. Jewish people without Yeshua die penniless. We can't have a relationship without the atonement. We don't believe in the atonement. We don't have a relationship. It's bad news. The good news is it's our gospel if we could only recognize it. So this calling is re-emphasized by Paul. Let's look in Romans 3. Romans 3. Paul's talking about the Jewish people and he says, Today... After the cross, verse 1, what advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? He's not saying how much do you charge for a circumcision operation. Okay? He's saying what advantage is there in being a Jew today in the cross, in the church, period. Is there any advantage in being Jewish? We don't like that word. We hate that word. Because if there's an advantage, somebody may outdeek us. They may get in ahead of us, and it brings fear out inside of us. But the fact is, everybody is born with handicaps and with advantages. Some of us are born just so good looking. What can you do? (laughs) Others of us are born humble. Some of us are born with both. Anyway, that's just a... Anyway, I just want you to smile, and if you don't, I'll be like Red Skelton, who's he? And I'll smile. (laughs) So the point of what he's saying here is the Jew has an advantage. You're born with more money. Your parents went to university. You're probably going to be able to go to university, and you'll have more money, and you'll earn more money. Is that an advantage? Maybe. Some people would say no, but socially... There are advantages. So God says the Jews have an advantage over the Gentiles. 
I have a Jewish believer friend who says, Don't tell the Gentiles this message. And I never asked him, you want to keep it to ourselves? But why, why, why why not? It's in the Bible. Paul wasn't ashamed. I'm not ashamed. What advantage has the Jew? Much in every way. Why? Well, imagine. There are flash floods occasionally in Missouri. And it comes from, you know, up near St. Joe and stuff. And Years ago when we were living here, the Mississippi flooded and nearly washed out portions of St. Louis. And, uh, and um, um, uh, the story is so interesting that I forgot my point. I remember flying all over St. Louis and seeing the water there, but um, there was a point behind us. No, it's not Jews walking on the water. <laughs> I don't know what the point was. Where was I, Rachel? They have an advantage in every way. That's true. Uh, But they don't walk on the water in floods. But there was a point. This is really sad. I will watch this tape later. And I will remember, I promise you, what I wanted to say. But uh, the point, what I'm saying much in every way, people having an advantage, that's what I was trying to say. Oh, God, help me. <laughs> What's that? Flash floods. I know. That's a song, Texas Flood. I don't know. It's Stevie Ray Vaughan. Anyway, um, the point that I'm saying is Jewish people have an advantage. Now, why was I, what was I trying to say? That you, ah, that's, thank you, Lord. Wonderful. So, there we are standing on the banks of the Mississippi River, right? And there's a guy going by. He's drowning. Okay, And I'm standing there with a little life preserver. And I say, friend, can I throw you a life preserver? He says, I don't want no unfair advantage. And he floats down the river. That's a beautiful story, isn't it? That's Romans 3, verse 2. The Jews have been given an advantage to help you to save your lives. You believe today because of the Jews. They went out, they preached the gospel to people who preached it to you. That's an advantage we have. We have thrown away our advantage, but it's still ours. It's like the cat came back. He couldn't stay away. It's still ours. The umbrella that we carry has Jewish stars all over it. Even though this beautiful Gentile country club has strange markings, probably occult symbols on the wall. If you pull them down, you'll notice there are Jewish stars behind it. That's the church. It's a Jewish church. It's the Commonwealth of Israel. Now, the majority in the church are not Jews. Did you ever notice? And there's a reason for that. Because God made the world 99% Gentile. So He gave an advantage to 1%. So that the 99, what kind of a crazy plan is this? Why not give 99% of the people the advantage and so you lose 1%. Who cares about them anyway? God says, I give 1% to the Jews. They get everything. And if you want it, you've got to go to them. One time I was in Muncie. <laughs> Only one time. At Ball State University. 
And uh, I was uh, handing out literature wearing a shirt said Jews for Jesus at the time in a previous incarnation. And I was handing out literature. And then I went in to eat lunch. And I went into the cafeteria and sat. And there was a Libyan there. Big guy. Big guy. Big what they call an Arab fro. I got a Jew fro. He got an Afro. He had an Arab fro. And uh, he looked at me and he saw Jews. He didn't see for Jesus. He saw Jews. That was enough. He wasn't too happy. And I was smiling and friendly and, you know, in love with the world. And he starts talking to me. And he says, you Jews, very bad people. And I said, oh, but I, it says you Jesus too. He said, oh, that's good. That's good. Good, good. And I said, you know, Jesus is the person you need. He said, no, no, I'm a Muslim. I said, no, you need to believe in Jesus, and he's a Jew. And he said, oh, that's not good. That's not good. So we were going back and forth on this. There was a certain humor to the situation. But God has determined to bless the world through the Jews, and the world basically says, I don't want it. Even today, a majority of people even who may call themselves Christians don't necessarily know Jesus and don't necessarily love the Jewish people. Even many people who are born again don't necessarily love the Jewish people. So there's a plan, there's a way of God here that's real important. And it's called priority. Priority. Now, why do I use that word? Let's look. I like <laughs> In Hebrew, you know, we read backwards. We read from right to left, even though some would say we start on the right side. And so I'm moving backwards through Romans, and eventually I'll get into Acts, and then we'll have revival. Uh, but in Romans 1, 16, I would like us to look for a second at this principle. My brother once said it's not school he hates, it's the principle of the thing. So let's look at the principle here, Romans 1, 16. A dear friend of mine, Jill Austin, of Rachel's and mine, said, you get people to laugh, and it's great. It's like a mother bird. When the mouth is open, you drop the worm in. (laughs) So, it says in verse 16, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. That's very good. I need a new pair of glasses. Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Messiah. Okay, now, theologians say this is the main superscripture for the entire book of Romans. I do not believe that Paul was thinking of how to keep seminary students amused throughout the centuries, but God, in his wisdom, guided Paul to write it this way. And so his first, that's a Jewish melody on your phone. <laughs> <laughs> For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Messiah. For it is, this is the main verb in Greek, it is. And that verb modifies the rest of the sentence. It's the only main verb there. It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. It is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So we have one verb. Now, basically, one time I know I was in seminary. And uh, I they had these big tables, big desks. You know, you can fit 50 books on them open. And uh, I said, I'm going to check something out here just so that I know about this. And I took out 30, 40 commentaries on Romans, the best ones, laid them all out there. And I began to look at how they look at chapter 1 and 2 of Romans. And I discovered that none of them did exegesis except three. 
the ones who said this doesn't apply to the Jews today didn't do exegesis. There was no argument except, well, of course, that's just the way it is. But the ones who did exegesis, in other words, in Messianic movement, we call it exe-Yeshua because we don't sometimes like to use the word Jesus. But those who did exegesis discovered that uh, the text leaves one no option except to leave everything in the present. Okay? And the word here that's used for the word first, you'll find some people say, well, it's true it came to the Jews first, but now it's for the Gentiles. Sounds good. Paul went first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And then he went back to the Jews again. And then he went to other Gentiles. And then he went to more Jews. And then he went to Gentiles. And then he came back to the Jews. And that, Well, let's ignore that. He just went to the Gentiles once. Let's stop right there. Ignore the rest of the Bible. We have theology. But that's not what it says here. The word in Greek is proton. Or proton, if you speak Greek. And proton means especially, chiefly of primary importance, of priority. That's the word. It's not a historical usage, one and then two, first in order, but it means period, chiefly, especially. You check out Brown, uh, uh, what's called B-A-G, D, the uh, uh, standard uh, Baron Gingrich, the standard lexicon, they give you all the rundowns of the term, and you'll see this is what the term means. Chiefly, Primarily. So what he's saying here is the gospel is primarily to the Jew. Good heavens. Does it, maybe the Gentiles don't need Jesus. Is that what he's saying? No, he's saying this firstborn issue applies within the church. It applies regarding the gospel. It applies regarding world revival. It applies, period. Because this is God's order. There was a song years ago. The court's in session. Here come the judge. Right? You remember that? Some of you remember that. I remember that. It's great. Now, when the judge comes in, and he's Jewish, and he says, order in the court. Salami on rye. Right? If it's a Jewish order, that means the Jewish people still have a priority today. With the gospel with revival, and with the purposes of God. Why? Why? Well, first of all, because God likes to offend us. He really does. Because there is pus in our hearts. Pride. Arrogance. Jewish arrogance. Jewish pride. Gentile arrogance. Gentile pride. And the best way to find out what someone thinks is to bring a Jew into the situation. God offends the mind to reveal the heart. The issue of God choosing is to show what's in our heart. Who really wants to be a servant before Yeshua changes your heart? Nobody. Nobody. And God says, the first shall be last. The last shall be first. He wants to be number one, becomes a servant of all. And so this principle that's so much part of the ministry and teaching and life and example of Yeshua is why God chose the Jewish people. To offend you guys. 
Then he turns around and he chooses you guys. And we get offended. So it's one big happy family. That's Romans 11, isn't it? Everybody hates everybody. And then God has mercy on everybody. And everyone gets saved? No. Only those who respond get saved. But this is what God's doing. He's in the business of being an offense. This kind of reminds me of the fence in Israel, you know, that they're building. And, um, but it doesn't really look like this. It's usually just made of barbed wire. But that doesn't look so good on TV. So they take the cement parts, which is about 3% of that, and they put that on TV. So you think it's all concrete. We, we have to import concrete from the Palestinians to build so much concrete, which we do. But that's another story. One of the top, the prime minister, sells us most of our concrete to build the wall. Very bad business. But anyway, so the point is there's a priority here. The gospel goes first to the Jew. Now, we say usually he goes last to the Jew, if at all. But it's first to the Jew. Now, that's bad enough. Let's look at chapter 2. It gets worse. Chapter 2, in the day of judgment and wrath, the day of the revelation of God's goodness and mercy and his judgment and wrath. And uh, for those of the British extraction. It says in verse 6 that God will render to each person, Romans 2.6, according to his deeds, eternal life to the one who by patient continuance in doing good seeks for glory, honor, and immorality. But to those who are self-seeking and don't obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, I add the words, God will render indignation and wrath. So there's tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil to the Jew proton and also to the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew proton, and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. God gives the Jewish people first dibs on everything, good and bad. Good and bad. Now, furthermore, Isaiah, well, how, what portion do the Jewish people get? First portion, and how much is it? Double portion, good and bad. Double. Let's look at Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40. This explains something of Jewish history right now. Comfort. Yes, comfort my people, says you, God. Speak over the heart of Jerusalem, it says in Hebrew, and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned, and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So in God's economy, a Gentile sins, he gets punished. A Jew sins, he gets punished twice. Who wants to be Jewish now? We have a sign-up list right over here. Double circumcision. <laughs> a cut below average. Okay, so the point is here, God punishes the Jewish people twice as much. This explains history a little bit, doesn't it? So is God just? Yes. Is there partiality? No. He gives more light, there's more judgment. Doesn't he say that about the church? He does. There's similarities here. Now, when Jews come into the body of Christ, is this finished now? Are these callings finished? Let's think about that for a second. And as we think, let's move forward in Romans, because we just touched Hebrew, so now we can go the other way. Romans 11. <coughs> Paul begins to sum up an argument, which is a long one. And Mike has been talking about it a lot. 
verse 28 of Romans 11, concerning the gospel, and I'm going to add in some words here, okay? Because Paul has already proved some points which we don't necessarily remember. And he's saying that it's not all the Jewish people who reject Yeshua, the majority perhaps at this point, but not all. Okay? Concerning the gospel, the majority of the Jewish people are enemies of the gospel for your Gentiles' sake. But concerning the election, the choosing of the nation, they are beloved for the sake of the patriarchs. God loves this nation. They're not saved, but he loves them. For the gifts, Romans 9, we looked at some of them, and the calling of God are irrevocable or without repentance. He doesn't change his mind on this one. This is New Testament teaching. Okay, it's not just Jewish teaching. It's Jewish teaching in the New Testament. The whole thing is Jewish. That's what we just read. But so, it's in the New Testament. It's purer. Okay. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So that means this calling on the Jewish people doesn't change today. But without Jesus, without Yeshua, Jewish people still have an eternity without him. There's a national calling, and God promises one day to take one-third of all the Jewish people and preserve their lives physically and to save them spiritually. That's the promise of the resurrection of Israel spiritually. But there's still this priority. Now, what does it mean? It means in a family, there's family etiquette. There's family order. There's court order in the kingdom of God. This has been laughed at, ignored, and, and violated in the history of the church. Not only through the murder of Jewish people, but through anti-Semitism and through not teaching these things. Everybody has problems, okay? We have our own problems in history, too. But the point I'm saying is it's still in order today. This means that the Jewish people to you are family, as it were, of the Messiah. And that's important to him. He wants you to be nice to his people in the church and in the world. He wants you to honor that calling. And it's a real opportunity for the gospel because if we can show that we like Jewish people, not only pray for them, then that's a step forward. If we can honor them, we make them jealous because they don't usually honor themselves in their calling. I came to faith through a Gentile man, a Dutch man, who had been raised a, a, a Christian but not knowing the Lord, been in Dutch underground and stuff. He came to the Lord about six months to a year before he met me. And I saw something in him. And he, he told me, he said, Avner, you need to be reading the New Testament. And I laughed. And he said, because it's about Jesus. He's your Messiah. Never heard any Gentile who was proud of the fact that Jesus was Jewish. Every church I went to into Quebec, I grew up in Quebec, Jesus was a, a blonde-haired French homosexual. He didn't look Jewish to me. You know, kind of thin wrists. You know, that kind of face. And I couldn't relate to it. There's the old story of the little Jewish girl who goes to a Catholic school, really bad-mannered, and she comes home the first day, and she's, yes, sir, no, sir. And her parents say, what happened? And they said, well, I walked into the classroom, I saw that guy up on the wall, and I said, I'm not going to do anything in this place. I'm going to get myself in trouble. 
So as far as Jewish people relating to the, to the, to the church, you know, um, we haven't heard a lot of positive things. That's why what's going on here with the International House of Prayer and where there's an outpouring of prayer and love and focus on the Jewish people, it's rare. It's going to be universal. It's biblical. But it's a forerunner thing. All a forerunner is, is in 10,000 years he gets to the finish line one second before other people. No big deal, really. But I'm glad that anybody gets there. Right? All of us. That's grace. So this important point that the gifts and the calling on the Jewish people are not changeable. They're still there. But they can't enter into them unless we pray for them to come into that. Now, I've taken um, a certain amount of time to talk about this because it's a foundation. You read the rest of the Bible with this understanding, and then all of a sudden things begin to pop out. And you say, oh, Isaiah really meant Isaiah. You know what blesses me so much? I'm hearing these ladies, the songbirds as they're called, singing these songs. And I'll tell you a secret. I used to be in this church when they sang the same scriptures. But they didn't mean what they're meaning now. And it wasn't so long ago. Don't think that they've been into this forever. It's new here too. It's like only about 4,000 years new, but here it's new. I remember in Montreal going to a supermarket and there was a man working behind a deli counter and a woman came up and said, Oh, you're new. And he said, Lady, I may be new here, but I'm not new. (laughs) So let's not get too excited about discovering something 4,000 years old. Okay? That's the way God planned it as some kind of Jewish-looking... Afro-American named Billy Preston who's been up and down in his life but used to start off at a church called Pomona Church of God in Christ where he played organ with a fellow named Andre Crouch he wrote a song about that and so that's the way God planned it I used to go to that church for a while when I lived in LA and it was one of the best experiences I had in my life and they called me up to preach once on the radio show and I started hitting the pulpit and doing all these things it was an anointing and I didn't, I just got into it. And uh, somewhere in the annals of uh, Los Angeles radio history, there's a tape of this Jewish guy, you know, doing this stuff. They only gave me seven minutes, so, but, you know, I was a young believer, so I didn't have all the rest of the stuff to talk about. But Okay, so we've looked at this issue of double portion. If you're interested, go to Isaiah 50, uh, 61. Uh, not now, but write it down. Isaiah 61 talks about the double portion in two different areas regarding the Jewish people in days to come. Okay. Um, now, that was the first point. We looked at the nation and the priority of the nation. Let's look at the land for a second. This is what, well, I won't say that yet. Let's look at Isaiah 2. Isaiah 2, Zechariah 14, Psalm 102. Three little passages for you. My Bible's upside down. There we go. But now it reads from left to right. I'm sorry, that was just a a subtle joke there. (laughs) I'm sorry. Isaiah 2. As my father would say, last, 
Lach, lach. Okay, he's talking to me, not to you. Isaiah 2. So it says here, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established priority above all the mountains, physically and spiritually. There's geographic changes. There'll be some changes made, uh, someone once said. And it shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow upwards. It's a supernatural flowing, right? Usually flow downwards, but they flow upwards to Jerusalem. Many, it's a, so what's happening here is there's a physical center of the world. The United Nations, I know there's a lot of Jews in New York, but we're talking about Jerusalem being the place where it should be. And who sits on top of it? Jesus, Yeshua, the Davidic King. Mike Bickler came up to me today and he was saying, Avner, I read an article that you wrote, it's on our website called davidstent.org, about the Davidic kingdom and the restoration of David's tabernacle. And he said, incredible article, I agree with every word you wrote on it. He said, some people think of the restoration of David's tabernacle and they think that it's a worship meeting. He said, that's not at all what the scripture teaches. He says that's a government term and it refers to the Jewish government in Jerusalem with Yeshua sitting on a throne over the whole world and other things too. And the Bible talks about especially in Jeremiah chapter 31 through 33, 34, things like that. This is an important thing. There's a centrality of the land for the entire world. Zechariah 14, you may know that passage. Um, for those in the Ministry of Tourism in Israel, they like this passage because it means at least if, <laughs> if Turim is, isn't good today, one day it will get better. Okay. <laughs> you remember that Yasser Arafat once was asked if he could make statements so that the American State Department would be happy against terrorism. And he said, oh, yes, I have no problem. I am against tourism. Anyway, in Zechariah 14, um, it says here in verse 16, And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came up against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. And it shall be, whichever the families of the earth don't come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them will be no rain. This is what you call the latter, latter, no rain. Okay. So there is a focus on the land. It's not only today and yesterday, it's also tomorrow. So we are talking about restoration on earth as it is in heaven. Very, very important. Very, very important. Now the amazing thing is that when God's going to do this, the Jewish people are not going to boast about it. It says that very clearly all over Ezekiel. We're not going to boast about it. And that'll be a miracle too. <laughs> Psalm 102. Psalm 102, verse 12. But you, O Lord, shall endure forever, and the remembrance of your name to all generations. You will arise and have mercy, as Kevin Prosh said. He cut off the, he circumcised the verse. You shall arise and have mercy on Zion for the time to favor her. Yes, the set time. The set time. God set a time. It's prophesied. Has come. For your servants. He doesn't say they're Jews. Maybe it's Jews. 
For your servants take pleasure in Zion's stones and show favor to her dust. This is the kind of lick a stone mandate. Okay? Lick a stone mandate. If you have God's heart for the Jewish people, you go to Israel, you come up to the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall, and you go, I love it. I love your stones. I love your dust. You know, those stones have seen a lot of history. They really have. (laughs) Especially Mick Jagger. But these stones here, these stones over here, it says we feel something. I've worked as a tour guide in Israel for many years when they were tourists. And um, people come, believers come all over the world, and they say, I don't know what it is. I come here and I feel like I'm home. I don't know what it is. And, and, and they start taking stones and putting them in their suitcases. <laughs> Little ones, you know. See some tourists getting column, you know, from Caesarea sticking it in the suitcase, you know. But it's biblical. But the point behind this is there is a connection between your heart, the Holy Spirit's heart, and even the stones of Israel. Redemption goes that far. Okay, it's, it's a passion thing. You know, the global bridegroom paradigm, I didn't know that term, so I have to get my tongue around it now. I just heard it as passion for Jesus a long time ago. But passion for Jesus is what we feel when we feel Jesus' passion for us. Just move half an inch over, and that's the Israel mandate. It's not far. It's just half an inch over. God's passion for Israel and her stones. Jews' passion for God. Half an inch. They were dovetailing messages all along. All along. Okay, so that's something about the land. And we've talked something about the blessing in Genesis 12. I'm going to turn to one more scripture, Romans 15. Romans 15. Everybody tired? Everybody stand up for one minute. Let's stand up and get the blood going. If you stand up, you'll get my blood going. Very good. Turn around. I would say kiss your neighbor, but we don't do that anymore because that's in the Bible. Romans 15. (laughs) So we can sit down now. Romans 15. Now this is a, uh, a scripture that it's hard for a Jewish person to talk to you about, but I'll talk to you anyway because it's in the Bible. Okay? This is where Paul is talking about Yugoslavia. Yeah, Macedonia, Achaia, etc. In Hebrew we say Bosnia. You know, Bosnia, come here for a second. And every time I say it to my kids, I change it and I say Bosnia. And they don't come, I say, Yugoslavia! And they come running. It's true. This is what we do at home all the time. But anyway, be thankful that you... Anyway, verse 26. For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. Nice thing. A good work. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. What is this word, debtors? For if the Gentiles, principle now, If the Gentiles have become partakers of theirs, of the Jewish people's spiritual things, not what used to be, but what are the Jewish people's spiritual things, the gospel, it is their duty, the Gentiles' duty, 
also to minister to them in material things. I don't usually talk about this verse. You can understand why. Yeah, I understand why he's preaching that. Right? So, but there's a point here, isn't there? It's true. It's an apostolic point, and I move on. Okay? So, uh, I think that's enough now. Okay, so now I want to take this, this um, parallel. I want to parallel, rather. I want to take this grid. Genesis 12.3. I haven't started yet. This is foundational. Okay? It's true. But uh, my sermon is actually only about two minutes long. So, but it's the foundation that's important, you know? Okay. So we have the three things. We have the land, we have the nation, and we have the blessing. Now, let's take a full stop and say, what about world history? How has the world interacted with that, and what do we do with it today? Well, I'll tell you. The nation, God says, I choose a nation. Two groups come along. Originally, a third group, but we don't hear much about them today. They're the Samaritans. They said, God didn't choose the Jews. He chose the Samaritans. They were from Iraq. And we found ourselves between Iraq and a hard place with the Samaritans. But the point was, the Samaritans were a dry run, okay? They were a dry run. Then the church came along. And the church said, God has rejected the Jews, and all their spiritual blessings apply to what really God meant by Israel, which is the church. So they stole our name, and they stole our spiritual blessings. Therefore, everything I've told you is meaningless. Because it doesn't mean Jew. When you see Jew, that means curse. When you see Israel, that means church. And so, one of the main pillars, the three pillars that God made to reach the world, the church said, I'm going to blow that puppy up. And I'm going to steal it from me. And I'm going to refashion it in my own image. And that's replacement theology. A friend of mine, Bob Jones, calls it the abominable snow job. Okay, and what that is, is if you want a, a verse which kind of sums up um, that, it's Jeremiah 30, verse 17. The attitude behind um, replacement theology. Jeremiah 30, if I remember, verse 17. By the way, I wanted to point out a dear, dear friend of mine in the room. Right in the back, his name is Charles Lynn. He's waving his hand at me saying, please. No, he says, don't. Charles Lynn goes back to the beginnings of Kansas City Fellowship. He's a prophetic fellow and a dear friend. He was the first guy who invited me to come to Kansas City. And a dear lover of Israel. Israel mandate's been on his heart for a long time, even before it was called that, just when it was in the Bible. And uh, he has, uh, he's a, a lovely brother. I want you to be aware of him because he's worthy of honor. Okay, Jeremiah 30, verse 17. This is God saying about the Jewish people, All who devour you shall be devoured, and all your adversaries, every one of them, shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall become plunder, and all who prey upon you I will make a prey. This is a different house of prayer. It's a different thing, okay? For I will restore health to you and heal you of your wounds, says the Lord, because they called you an outcast. And they said, 
It's only Zion. Nobody cares for her. That's been the history of the church. It's only the Jews. Who gives a heavenly care about them? So that was the enemy's strategy to take the vehicle that God meant for bringing the Jews to a godly jealousy and instead making it an element of terror and murder toward the Jews. That's what he wanted to do. I can tell my fellow Israelis are in the other room preaching. Amen. So the replacement theology is the first step after Samaritanism, but then comes Islam. And Islam says double replacement theology. God has not only taken away your spiritual blessings and given them to us, he's taken away your land and given it to us. See, the first step was made by the church or the Samaritans, depending on how far back you want to go. The next step was made by Islam, and that's where we are today. So this issue of Satan challenging, hath God said he's chosen this nation? And the church says, no, he never said that. Never meant it. He'll never do it. Islam says, his name isn't even God. It's not Jehovah. That was a mistake. He never chose the Jews. He hates them. He'll destroy them. And he's given everything good to us. So Islam and Christianity aren't that different in one sense. And then, of course, you add Judaism. We rejected Jesus, so we have problems too. So, but nevertheless, the first point is the nation chosen by God has been attacked. The calling of them has been attacked. That's why I'm taking so long kind of demolishing these things for us so that we realize what the enemy has been doing in history. It's not enough to say, well, what do we think about replacement theology in respect to all the other replacement theologies? It's not like that. This is a main attack of the enemy on the purposes of God. Going back to Genesis 12, that's a long way. This is the way God intended to bless the earth. And if we reject that, we reject him. The second point then, the land, as I said. What's going on today about the land? Well, everybody knows the West Bank doesn't belong to the Jews. It's occupied Arab land. Years ago, I was listening to Cross Country Checkup, which was a Canadian program. I just came back from Israel, and, uh, or was just going to Israel. And they had um, Teddy Kolek, who used to be the mayor of Jerusalem, on by phone. And they said, Mr. Kolek, would you comment to us about the fact that Israel is going through a lot of problems because they're dealing with occupied Arab lands. And he said, yes, we have a tremendous problem with Arab occupied lands. Now, the first part, occupied Arab lands, already says who they belong to and who they should belong to and who they will belong to. The second one, Arab occupied lands, refers to the fact that there are Arabs living there, but as to who the land belongs to, that's a different issue. So, what does the Bible say? The Bible actually says that God bless those Arabs who have settled there, but they're squatters. That's not their ultimate destination, and they're not going to be there forever. They are going to move, because God never promised that land to them. He promised it exclusively to the Jewish people. Now, that's politically incorrect. If I were back in Montreal at Concordia University today, I would be wearing chainmail. You know, they say in Christ there is no chainmail, so you have to stay out of those situations. But anyway, (laughs) 
you want to read Ezekiel 36 for yourself at another time to look at this issue of the land? Look at Psalm 83, Ezekiel 36, Joel 3, verses 1 through 3, Zechariah 13, 8, 9, 14, 1, 2, and 3. Look at those to get a kind of a beginning theology about the issue of the land. Because God said, I'm bringing the Jewish people back to that land. You don't think he knew that there would be Palestinian Arabs living there? He knew. Uh, I forget. Zechariah 13, 8 and 9, 14, 1 through 3. Joel 3, verses 1 through 3. Uh, Ezekiel 36, Psalm 83. And then the rest of the Bible. But that's a good starting place. Um, God knew that there would be people living there. He knew that the Arab nations would have tremendous amount of oil. He knew that the Western world doesn't give a darn about the Jewish people if oil is concerned. He knew that, and that's what's happening today. So we are heading down into a collision course with the God of Jacob over the issue of the land. America sends people to measure alleys in Hebron. CIA, to measure alleys in Hebron as they divide up the land. It's incredible. Unfortunately, the government of the United States is now on record. Well, it's been on record for a long time, but it's actively in record, doing things to help divide the land of Israel. That's very dangerous. Very, very dangerous. Because God says, whoever divides my land, when I come, here come the judge. And there's going to be problems. So, the second point, the nation, Hitler trying to wipe it out, the church rejecting it, Islam rejecting it, the land, the second point, the land, the whole world is saying Israel doesn't have a right to half of its own land. And whatever God said, that's just fundamentalist crazies. So again, the enemy is focusing in on the Abrahamic covenant. The people, the land, and then the issue of the blessing as well. So this is a lot to deal with, isn't it? It's a lot to deal with. When we look at something old, like Genesis 12:3, it's shaping our history today. This is what we're dealing with, what's going to bring us down, God forbid, as a nation, and what's going to cause the whole world to be shaken to its core. Three little things. A Jewish people, a Jewish land, and a Jewish blessing curse, the Plotnik curse. This is what God is doing in the world today. So this is a foundation Okay, there's a lot. I mean, the whole Bible deals with all sorts of millions of other things. But this is just the beginning. I wanted to ask Rachel to come up and to talk a little bit um, about Islam. Uh, I was asked also to talk about Islam, a few words, as Karl Barth would say, on infant baptism. But in the meantime, there's only so much you can do. So if you want to read more about Islam, and I said it much better because I thought about it a lot, there's a... Uh, a booklet called A Perspective on Islam that you can buy, and that will tell you a lot about Islam. It will quote all the source documents, and you can chew on it for yourself. Um, some of you probably have it already on the web. Uh, you can download it on the web. Yeah, you don't have to buy it. Just go on the web, run up your bill, and download it, reading it, you know, whatever. You know, understand what I'm saying. So Islam is interesting, and Islam is a big issue, and it takes a lot of time to talk about that. And I don't want to get into a lot of details on that right now. But I did want Rachel, and she also wanted, to share something about 
what the Lord spoke to her about the issue of interceding for the Jewish people regarding these challenges in the world today? Um, I'm trying to... The 9-11, was that in 2001? 2001. So in, in 2000, on the Feast of Trumpets, or Rosh Hashanah, was the outbreak of the current violence in Israel, which sometimes is called the Intifada. I don't prefer to use that word because um, that word literally means the shaking off in Arabic of Jewish domination. I, I look upon it as the current war. Uh, against the Jewish people, in, mostly in terrorism. So in the year 2000, on the Feast of Trumpets, that was the outbreak of the current violence. Does everybody remember that? When Ariel Sharon went up on the Temple Mount, and there was a huge riot, and then there was just ton, in the next weeks and months, it was really, really bad for Israel. And it's basically continued pretty much nonstop until now. So if that was 2000, and we're in 2004, that was three and a half years ago? Is that right? Right, that's interesting. It was three and a half years ago. I don't, we don't think that's a tribulation or anything, but I'm just reflecting on the fact that that was three and a half years ago, and Israelis really are, they keep track of how much time has passed, and every so often they'll say, two and a half years ago this started, three years ago this started, now it's three and a half years, and it's basically just continuing every few weeks, every few days, sometimes a month or two will go by and then there's a major terrorist attack. So we're counting it. We're aware of it. So anyway, I'll backtrack a little bit to maybe about 10 years ago or more. I felt like the Lord said to me that Israel is like God's soft underbelly. He's very sensitive in his heart about the Jewish people because they are the wife who betrayed him. And so he's emotional. He, has, he feels very emotional about his relationship with Israel because that was his first love. Talks in about Hosea, how Israel was a wife who uh, was adulterous toward her husband. And so he's emotional. He has deep feelings about the Jewish people. And he will get them back. So I felt like he said to me, Israel's my soft spot. So on the morning of the Feast of Trumpets three and a half years ago, I had a dream before Ariel Sharon went up on the Temple Mount and caused, and, and that was the excuse for the outbreak of violence. I had a dream that morning as I woke up, before I woke up, that I was kneeling in my living room next to a big blue armchair that we have. And uh, some people of you who move in prophetic and dream interpretation, the color blue oftentimes has to do with the prophetic. I was kneeling uh, next to this chair and praying, and um, a big lion came up behind me. And it was, I was scared because I didn't know if this was a good lion or a bad lion. And as I was praying, the lion came up and laid on top of me on the chair and uh, somehow I knew in my dream that the lion wanted me to scratch his belly. And, and in dreams you can do things you don't do in real life. Somehow I was able to rub this lion's belly. And as I rubbed his belly, he got heavier and heavier and heavier on me until I couldn't move. I wasn't hurt, but I couldn't move. And he, and, um, he was, it was a sense of being very protected and, and something very good. It was a good lion. 
And uh, it was an intimate thing, and I was able to rub his belly, and he wanted me to do that. And so um, after, I, after this, I, he got up, and I, knew, and I sensed in my spirit that he was going to fight. He was going out to fight. And that my scratching his belly had given him strength to go fight. And in my dream, he was going out to fight the spirit of Allahu Akbar. Do you know what Allahu Akbar is? Allah is great. And I know he was going to fight that spirit. Yes, when, when, when they're killing, them, when terrorists blow themselves up, they often, that's the last thing you'll hear them say, Allahu Akbar. And so what that dream means to me, scratching the belly, the underbelly of God, is intercession for Israel. And that that touches God in a very intimate place that he wants us to intercede for Israel. It touches his heart. It speaks his language. It's what he wants to hear from us. That that is um, going to give him a mandate and, and energy to go out and fight his enemies. So that there is a direct connection between intercession for Israel and God fighting against his enemies, which right now is the spirit of Islam, amongst other enemies that he has. There is a spiritual uh, stronghold, a power that is energizing Islam to do these things. And that as we intercede for Israel, God's presence and protection over us will be very strong. There's a connection between intercession for Israel God's, and intimacy with God and God's protection. And so I just, uh, that, what is interesting to me is that I had that dream that morning, the day that it, um, the whole thing started. And so I feel like the Lord was just letting me know, and, and I'm letting you know, that he does want us to intercede for Israel, that it gives him, um, we give, we, it's, prayer is such a mystery. It's such a mystery because God's going to do what he's going to do if we don't pray. But he wants us to cooperate with him. So there's a cooperative aspect in prayer, and it's, it is a mystery because he's sovereign, he's all-powerful, and yet he w- moves through our prayers. So that intercession for Israel leads to intimacy with him. It leads to protection. I even believe that as Islam becomes a stronger force in the world, and I don't think Islam is the final enemy of God. I think that enemy is going to fall. I believe many, many Arab people will accept Yeshua. And so, but that as we intercede for Israel, it, it, it touches his heart. It's an intimate place. It's protection for us. And also, it, it gives God a mandate to go out and fight his enemies. So we're going to begin to to sum up a few things, and uh, maybe if there are questions in a minute or two, uh, you don't have to think, you know, them up. But if you have some already, uh, I'd be happy to talk with you about that. Um, the um, the three pillars of the land, the nation, and the blessing curse. The responses to those through Islam through replacement theology, through Palestinian nationalism today, the challenges ahead of us. One of the most important things we can do is to pray. I don't think it's the only thing. I think it's the pickling thing. We need to get pickled so that it's part of our life 
and part of our calling. The Bible also says there are other things you can do. One of them is you can share the gospel with Jewish people. That's a whole sensitivity. It takes time. You know, if no one had shared the gospel with me, I don't know how I would have come to faith. It was Gentiles who shared with me. So don't be afraid. This, you know, Ananias and Paul, they had an interesting interaction, didn't they? It changed uh, Paul's life. He was afraid. Remember the guy who came and prayed for Paul and all that? Don't be afraid. So somebody gets angry at you. But uh, somebody may come to faith, too. It's pro- it's.